Thank you, Jonathan. Well, I've had a nice day in Enid. I got to, uh, Jonathan took me to lunch at a uh, soup and salad. What was it? Cat, Katie? Katie's Pantry. It was crowded today, and uh, that was really good. Enjoyed that. Then uh, we went out to the Kisslings to the uh, to the Brent and Jennifer Bible names display. <laughs> that may be a little more Brent's, uh, but it, he, as he talked about it, Jennifer had contributed. Uh, but it's something he's worked hours on. We I think we just just. Just as a just to give an idea about how much time he just guessing, uh, it probably works out to something like eighty three days. If he worked twenty four hours a day, it'd be like eighty three days. If if you just stacked them up like that, that's the number of hours. Now that he did, he didn't know that for sure, but he would guess something like that. So it fills up half that garage. So in um, a big garage, it's quite a display. So every name in the Bible, you all probably know this, uh, but every name in the Bible he's got on a, like a three by five card. And they're like, they start with obviously Adam and Eve, and then works forward to all the way to Jesus. And I don't know how many cards he has. 2,998. It's every name in the Bible. Uh, so it's, it's, it's quite, a, quite a feat. Uh, and those names in Scripture are tough. For a lot of different reasons, but um, it's quite quite a display. So I, he told me about it before. I was happy to actually get out to see that. So that was the good part of the day. On the downside, I found out that my son, the basketball player, has COVID. Now he feels all right, but he had some some uh, a headache Saturday, and um, then just some congestion, but not too bad. I I wasn't around him very much. Uh, at all once he had symptoms so he tested positive at home so his mother went to work now they were out of school today but they had practice at 11 so my my wife sent a a text to like the coach coach's wife some other players on the team so he didn't know that she had told anybody so he went to practice because because he he wanted to practice and he felt okay and the coach said You've got COVID. He said, but I feel fine. <laughs> he said, you've got to go home. <laughs> so uh, we'll see where he goes. They've got a game tomorrow night. I don't know how. He, he, he says, well, if I don't have any symptoms, he talked to his coach. If I don't have any symptoms tomorrow, uh, coach said, maybe I could play. So I don't know. I'm out of it. It's on, it's on live stream. So I guess I'll find out when I, when I tune into that tomorrow night at 8. But anyway. He'll be fine. Uh, he's had, he had it once before. My wife's had it twice. I've had it once, but it's been a long time, two and a half. You know, it was pretty early on. Um, but what are you going to do? But we're here tonight feeling good and ready to study Ephesians. So, so let's do that. Now, I'm bad about not being able to move on till I feel like I've sort of put a bow on a section until I feel like I've covered it sufficiently. And, and that 3 through 14 section, I kind of rushed through it, and there's one little section in there I want to go back and, and, and do it justice. And I just want you to see the flow of the thought there in, in chapter 1, verses 3 through 14. So he starts out by saying, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies in Christ. And then he names specifically three spiritual blessings uh, that he wants to give praise to God for. And the first one is election. If you're looking at the outline, I'll pull that out so I can sort of point you to where I am. If you're looking at, your, at that outline, uh, you would see on the front page, I think, it, I'm not sure yours is formatted exactly. Let me have one of those, Jonathan, so I can see. Yeah, it's a little different than the one I brought with me. So if you're looking um, at the handout uh, that that you have, it is the front page. Roman numeral one under praise and prayer. Praise for every spiritual blessing in Christ under the praise of his glory. And the reason why I point out that under the praise of his glory, that phrase marks off the three sections uh, of what he wants to give praise to God for. So you'll notice 
verse 4 is election. He praises God for election. See, uh, praise to God, it's A. Praise to God for his gracious election. Does everybody see that? Under, under praise and prayer, Rome numeral 1, A, praise to God for his gracious election. So it's in that, I talked about he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. I talked about that last night. And verse 5, uh, in love he predestined us for adoption through Jesus Christ for himself according to the good pleasure of his will. Now look at verse 6. Under the praise of his glorious grace with which he favored us in his beloved son. So, so that line brings an end to the first spiritual blessing that he wants to give thanks to God for, that unto the praise of his glorious grace. Now, the second spiritual blessing I didn't cover quite as well, but if you turn the page, praise to God for his gracious redemption. So the first one was uh, his gracious election. He chose us before the foundation of the world. But then B, top of the next page, praise to God for his gracious redemption. Now that's going to cover uh, verses 7 through 12. Now just look at 12, verse 12. In order that we might be under the praise of his glory. See that phrase, under the praise of his glory? It's the same phrase you see back there in verse 6, under the praise of his glorious grace. So that tells you that's the end of the second spiritual blessing. So let's talk about it. It's redemption. Verses 7 through 12, the spiritual blessing is redemption. He says in verse 7, in whom we have redemption through his blood. Do you know what redemption means? It's, it's a great term, theological term, that describes something that God has done for us in Christ. There's lots of these words. Salvation is probably the one we use most often. Justification is another. Reconciliation is another. Atoning sacrifice is another. But what about redemption? It's a term that has to do with slavery. And for a slave to be redeemed, that means that someone pays a price in order to set a slave free. Now, any Jewish person like Paul steeped in the history of his people, thinking about a slave being set free would think of one event, the Exodus. That was the event in Israel's history where God set the slaves free. In that case, God set Israel free from Egyptian slavery, Egyptian bondage. Look at the way Paul describes this spiritual blessing. In whom we have redemption through his blood... Now, slaves being set free from slavery, now he applies this to the people of God at Ephesus. Most of them wouldn't have been Jewish Christians. They would have just been Gentile Christians. So he's not, he's not talking specifically about the Exodus here. He's talking about Jesus dying in, in order to pay the price that we might be set free from our slavery. But the parallel is a beautiful one. How were those Israelite slaves set free. What was the event that brought about their release from slavery? The passing over of the death angel over the firstborn in the families. Only the Jewish families knew to put what? The blood of a lamb on the doorpost so that the death angel would pass over. So it was the, it was the blood of a lamb that was the precipitating event that led to the Israelite slaves being set free. And, of course, you can see the parallel to that. We were set free from our slavery by the blood of Jesus. That was the price paid, like the blood of the lamb on the doorpost. So it's the language of redemption and ransom. When Jesus says in Mark ten forty five that he came to give his life a ransom for many, that ransom is the word for the price paid to set a slave free. He's saying in as clear terms as he could, I've come for a new exodus to set people free, and it's my blood will be the ransom, the price paid. So it's a beautiful parallel, and um, that we've been set free from our slavery to sin and self and, um, and Satan, 
is, is paralleled beautifully uh, by that Exodus event. Now, if you wanted to go deeper with that, you know, theologically and think about to whom is the ransom paid in order that we might be set free, there's really two options. Well, who enslaved us? Satan. But do you like the image of Jesus paying Satan a ransom like he's paying him off? Does that seem to fit what Jesus did with respect to Satan? No, he defeated him. He didn't pay him off. He didn't owe him anything. So that doesn't work. And you could say, well, who would the other option be? God. That, that somehow he paid the ransom to the Father. And I like that one better. But I, there's something about seeing the, the Son paying a ransom to his Father that, that somehow I, I worry about that from a trini, Trinity perspective because I think both the Father and the Son are working to bring about salvation inseparably. And, and I don't really want to see the Son like paying off the father because the father's suffering too and and the son is bringing about redemption as much as the father through his work so here's what i think about it i don't think you have to have the ransom paid specifically to to either god or you don't have to figure out who it's paid to specifically think about the exodus who who paid the ransom there who got paid off there nobody it was the blood on a doorpost, and, and God brought them out by his powerful arm. You don't, I don't think you have to say, you don't have to carry the metaphor that far to say, well, who got paid off? If I had to choose, I'd go with the Father, certainly not Satan. But I'm, I'm content with just seeing Jesus paying the price. He purchased us by his blood and set us free from our own slavery. And... Um, I'm, I'm content to leave it at that. Now, let's keep going in verse 8. Uh, or still in verse 7. So, he, um, in whom uh, we have redemption through his blood, that is the forgiveness of trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he poured out upon us. So, here he uses the word uh, for tr- uh, trespass. It's like stepping out of the proper path. It's like I'm taking a misstep. It's that word for sin. Uh, and, w- and we've experienced the forgiveness of our sins. That's, that's part of our being set free. And then we get, according to the riches of his grace. That's the first time he uses this word uh, riches. But he's going to use it six times. Uh, look in verse verse 18 of chapter 1, which we saw in the sermon yesterday morning. Uh, on in there, later in the verse, he says, um, after he says, What is the hope of his calling, and what are the glorious riches of his inheritance among the saints? See the word riches there? That's the, that's the second time he uses that word. Then look in 2.4. But God, who is rich... In mercy, uh, that's the third of his six uses of it. And I'll just stop there. There's three more. Or, uh, yeah, and we'll, we'll get to them in time. But, but God is rich. But there is nothing that he is more rich in than grace. And he keeps talking about the glorious riches of his grace. And, and, and here he uses that word, according to the riches of his grace, we have the forgiveness of sins, which he, which he poured out on us, which he lavished uh, on us. And then, in all wisdom and revelation, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ. And so here's that language of, um, we saw it in the sermon yesterday, but... Wisdom and revelation, wisdom and insight, it talk, it's a way of referring to knowledge of God. Here specifically, the mystery of his will. Now sometimes Paul says, like in Colossians, he says it this way, in 1 Corinthians this way, that the mystery of his will is Christ in you, the hope of glory. 
That's one way to think about what this mystery is that has been made known to us. Christ in you, the hope of glory. But in Ephesians, it, it is that, but he nuances it just slightly to it's this God tearing down the dividing wall between Jew and Gentile. That there is one people of God. And, and Gentiles are now co-heirs, co-sharers uh, with Israel in the people of God. And that's a mystery uh, that has been revealed now. And, and what is Paul? What's his, what's his calling? He is what? Apostle to the Gentiles. So he's very much interested in that dividing wall being torn down so that the way is opened up for Gentiles to be part of the people of God. So he makes reference to that having made known to us the mystery of his will according to the, his good pleasure which he purposed in Christ. And now he's mentioned Christ. He says, for administrating the fullness of the times in order that he might sum up all things in Christ, whether things in heaven and things on earth, in him. So it's a nice looking to the future, to what God is doing. That God is administrating the fullness of the times. That, that word that he uses for administrating or the act of administrating or stewarding or managing, it's a word that refers to, to who, the people who run a household in the ancient world which was often slaves. A slave might be trusted, rise up through the ranks, and finally rise to the level of actually being an administrator of a estate or a household. And the slave would then be entrusted with the education of the children, often with the doling out of the inheritance, would just basically run the operations of the household. Slavery, of course, was ingrained in the culture. Well, this is that word, part of the word, it's a compound word, has to do with the house. It's like the, the, the one who runs the household, the, the administrator. Here, God is that administrator. He is the one administrating the, the fullness of the times. The fullness of the times. Now, Paul uses this language very close to it in Galatians 4.4. 4. I may have quoted it last night. When the fullness of time had come. Now there it's singular. The fullness of time. God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. The fullness of time, as he uses it in Galatians 4.4, 4, is clearly a reference to the incarnation. Jesus' birth. That's a good Christmas sermon. That's the fullness of time. When all the conditions were right, God sent forth his son. That's the fullness of the time. But when he makes it plural, the fullness of the times, it's clear he's looking beyond just the incarnation. Now it's something that's going to happen in the future when God has administrated his purposes fully and he brings all things to its proper conclusion. Do you believe that? Do you believe in God's providence? I know that you, you, can, you can feel like sometimes the world has just lost its mind and out of control and hope that it comes to some sort of a soft landing at some point. But no matter how chaotic things might get, you can't see the world through those lens. God is administrating the fullness of the times. God has not lost control of the world that God made. And God is moving the world towards its proper conclusion. Not just an end, but a conclusion. And there's a difference. Something can, can end without really coming to a proper conclusion. I, I had a, we've, we've, we've had a, a whole series of dogs. I'm a dog person. And we've had these little King Charles Cavalier. They're like little Cocker Spaniels, and they're just the sweetest thing. They're, they're better tempered than Cocker Spaniels. They're just so sweet, and, and I just think they're so cute. And we've had about four or five of them. We've had a, we had two die, uh, one in August, and then this dog that I love more than any dog I ever had uh, died in the day after Thanksgiving. Uh, oh, yeah, brutal. Um, but that dog, her name was Macy. Um, same name as my 
older son's girlfriend. That's been a little bit of a problem, you know, like some, at some point we had a question in the house, does Macy, would Macy eat salmon? I said, are you kidding me? She'd eat it up like, and they were talking about Luke's girlfriend. I was talking about the dog. So we've had a lot of those kinds of situations, but um, Macy, the dog, uh, I, I had a Bible that she got to at some point when she was just a puppy. And she chewed up like the last two or three pages of the Bible. She got Revelation like 18, 19, 20 right in there. And so um, luckily I knew that. I wouldn't go somewhere and preach on Revelation, open up, and it, it's not there. It's been chewed out. But that Bible now concludes at about Revelation 17. So the Bible comes to an end at Revelation 17, but that's not the conclusion there's several more chapters that just aren't there. And you, the, this world is not headed towards some sort of where it just ends at some point. It's headed towards a conclusion that God has purposed. And so he's administrating this fullness of the times. And what will mark the end of it all when he sums up all things in Christ? And the word he uses here for summing up is like to put everything under his headship. It is to make him not just in, in what he has declared, but in, in actual practice, Lord over all things. That whether things in heaven or on earth, in him. And then the third spiritual blessing is the gift of the Holy Spirit. And this is where I was okay. I got to this a little bit last night, so I'm, an, I'm just going to hit it ever so briefly uh, when he says in verse 13, uh, in which also you, after you heard the word of truth, that is the gospel of your salvation, in which also after believing, you were sealed by the Holy Spirit of promise. You see that you were sealed at the near the end of verse 13. That is a very beautiful picture of something the Spirit does um, in us and for us, this this putting a seal on something was some, was very common in the ancient world. It was a way of marking something that was valuable to you. It could mark a document. You could put a seal on a document, and that would mark it as your you, that you owned it. That seal or a seal or stamp on a document could also authenticate that document. Something like a signature. So it, it sort of played a dual role of both showing ownership and authenticating something as legitimate. So they did it with documents. Uh, they did it with slaves. They would put a mark on a slave to indicate who, who a slave belonged to. Uh, they would do it with uh, anything valuable, livestock. I mean, we still do that, right? It's like branding uh, a cow, so that you can demonstrate it belongs to you. So the Spirit has done that for us. When we receive the Spirit at conversion, it, be it becomes a mark, a seal, of that we belong to God. We are His authentic people. It authenticates us as the people of God. If you don't have the Spirit, then you're not part of the people of God. It's not possible so we're, we're sealed by the Holy Spirit of promise. And then which is the down payment or the engagement ring, remember, of our inheritance. Um, leading to the redemption of what God purchased. And then look at this last line. Under the praise of his glory. You see that line three times? Do you see it at the end of verse 6? Under the praise of his glorious grace. And then did you see it in verse 12? in order that we might be uh, unto the praise of his glory. And then here at the end of verse 14, unto the praise of his glory. That little line marks off these three sections so you can see what the three spiritual blessings are. So what are they? What's the three spiritual blessings he thanks God for? Election, redemption, and the gift of the Holy Spirit, which seals us and is the down payment of more to come. That God's not finished with us yet. Uh, that more to come. 
Okay. So now I'll put that down. Set that page down. And, uh, and we move on to the next section. So we get a nice... I'm skipping prayer on behalf of the Ephesian believers because that was the sermon Sunday morning. So now to body. And uh, that see that at the top of that page? I got the right one here, don't I? Yep. So we're going we're gonna to look at chapter 2 together here. So you've got 2, 1 through 11. Or excuse me, 2, 1 through 10. And you've got 11 through 22. Now that's what makes up chapter 2, this first part of the body. And Paul has set these two um, passages... Side by side. They're structured exactly the same way. So 2, 1 through 10 is about what it means for the individual to be in Christ. To be marked by His Spirit. To be sealed by the Spirit. What does it, what does it mean for the individual? And it sort of forces us to think about theologically who we were and what God has done for us. So now, here's the big picture. Chapter 2, uh, verses 1 through 3, is, is the human predicament. Paul sets out in the most clear terms just how bad off human beings are before they become part of the people of God, before you are in Christ. If you want to think of it this way, when you were in Adam what your situation was. And, and I think it's very helpful to remember just how bad our predicament was. Because if you don't remember the predicament, you won't appreciate the grace and mercy that you've been shown. So he's going to say, here's the human predicament. And then in verses 4 through 7, he's going to say, here is God's grace. Here's what God did in response to that. And then in verses 8, 9, and 10, he's going to say, now here are the consequences of God's work of grace. Here's what ought to happen now in our lives. Now, that's for the individual. He's going to say you were dead, but by God's grace you were saved. And as a result of that, now you should do good works. Then, 11 through 22, he does the same thing. But now it's not the individual. Now he's talking about sort of nations. Now he's talking about the church. And, and, he, and he's using the image of Jew and Gentile. So what was the predicament? Well, Gentiles were separated from the nation of Israel, separated from God, hostile to God, without God in the world, and without hope. That was the Gentile plight. Now, if you're thinking, well, that was them. Well, who do you think we are? We're not ethnic Jews. We, I mean, someone could be, but, you know, I've been teaching OBU 26 years almost, and I don't think I've had one Jewish student in that whole time. And uh, I've not run into many Jewish folk in my Baptist churches where I get out and teach. So that's us. That's who we were before God's work of grace. We were Gentiles separated from all this grace that God was showing to Israel when he chose them. But we didn't have the law. We didn't have the prophets. We didn't have Abraham. So we were separated from the nation of Israel and separated from God. That was the, the Gentile predicament or plight. But what was God's work of grace? In short, he tore down the dividing wall. And he made a way for, for one people of God made up of both Jew and Gentile. He removed the hostility between Jew and Gentile and between Gentiles and himself for those who believe. So what are the consequences of this work of grace where he tears down the dividing wall between Jew and Gentile? It is that now we, the church, are a multi-ethnic temple of God where God's presence dwells, the church. So you might say, well, good job. We'll get out early tonight. No, now that's the big picture. But now we've got to go back and look at it a little more closely. So let's start with 2, 1 through 10. And uh, here are the implications of being in Christ for the individual. And here it is. We've been moved from death to life. 
So he starts out at 2, 1 through 3, and if, uh, where did I put that outline? Yeah. So let's, let's make sure you're following along. You see um, the implications of being in Christ for the individual in the church, and then A, from death to life in Christ. And then if you go down there, you see 1, the human predicament, 2, God's work of grace, 3, the consequences of the new life. So now let's, let's work our way through that. So two, so 2, 1 through 3, here's the human predicament. And you, although you were dead in your trespasses and your sins, in which you walked formerly according to this world age, according to the ruler of the domain of the air, the spirit which now works in the sons of disobedience, in which also you all conducted yourselves formerly in the lusts of our flesh, doing the will of the flesh and of the mind. And we were children by nature of wrath, as also the others. Now, if you want to hear a sorry, sad predicament, that's the shape we were in. Can you remember when you were spiritually dead? I mean, for some of us, you know, I, I became a believer at 10 years old. Uh, my um, my uh, sister-in-law, one of my sister-in-laws, they have a little boy. He's four or five, and uh, she called Ange on, uh, I guess, Sunday night and said uh, their, their little boy had become a believer. He's, he's four. Now, he's been in church all his life. They've really talked to him, worked with him. So that's young, but I'm not going to say, I'm not saying anything. It's young, but it's possible. Um, but, but, I mean, sometimes we don't remember. It's been so long. I was 10. You know, I, I, I don't remember that much about, you know, 7, 8, 9, feeling like I was dead spiritually. I knew at 10 that I had a problem, and I believed Jesus was the answer for it, and I didn't understand a lot about it, but I decided then I was, I was going to go up there and do what they were asking me to do, and I prayed, and the best I knew how, I gave my life to Jesus. Now, I've figured, been figuring what all that means fully ever since. Still don't know that I've got it all figured out what that means for me, but changed my life, transformed me. But it's good to at least be reminded of the situation we were in. We weren't pretty good folks sort of moving towards God. We were dead. So he, so he starts out, and you, although dead in your trespasses and sins, so you were dead, in which you walked formerly. Now look what you were sort of bound to. According to this present world age, now... What's that mean? What's this present world age? I just say this fallen world system. We live in a fallen world, and there are consequences of living in a fallen world. We're impacted by it every day. Yes, the kingdom of God is broken in, but this present evil age moves right along at the present time also, and we live in it. Now, the, the question is, do you submit to it? Do you just sort of go along with it are you being ruled by it do you live your life according to the principles of this world age i hope not but we did before we were in christ and then the second one is according to the ruler of the domain of the air or the authority of the air so we got the world who would this be the devil right? The ruler of the authority of the air or of the domain of the air. Sort of that language of, if you look back in chapter 6, verse 12, which we'll get to on uh, the last, on Wednesday night, when he's talking about, you know, the spiritual warfare and putting on the full armor of God. I think I read this verse last night uh, for, he says, uh, our warfare or, or our struggle is not against blood and flesh, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against this present world powers of darkness, 
against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenlies. So who rules all those? The prince and the power of the air. So, so we, were, we were just at, at we, we had no way to combat the devil. So we were sort of living our lives according to this present world age, according to the devil, the spirit which now works in the sons of disobedience. And then the third one in verse 3, in whom also we all conducted ourselves formerly in our fleshly lusts, doing the will of the flesh and of the mind. And mind here would be a mind that's not in Christ. This would be the mind that's sort of filled, that's inclined to evil. And certainly the flesh, in most instances in the New Testament, is, an, is a reference not to this, not to the body, but to that part of a human which is set against God, which desires its own, which is selfish and self-seeking and worships the creation or, the, or, or self rather than worshiping God. Fallen human person. So who were we uh, sort of living by the rule of? The world, the devil, and the flesh. And as a result of that, spiritually, we were dead. And he says, in fact, and we were children of wrath by nature, by instinct. You might even say by birth, as are the others. Now, if we ended there tonight, that'd be a real downer. I mean, that's a predicament. You want to talk about a bad situation. But I'm, I'm sensing there's a but coming. So when you look at verse, verses 4 through 7, now we see God's work of grace. But God, who is rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us. Now look at, look at verse 5. And although we were dead in our trespasses. Do you remember that line? Where did we just hear about being dead in our trespasses? Verse 1. That's where he started in you, although you were dead in your, in his, in your trespasses. Now, nobody enjoys grammar lessons on Monday night, Ephesians Bible study. And uh, I'm a Kentuckian, so I'm not sure I should be giving grammar and syntax lessons to anybody. But, but I, the, he does something here, and English translations are going to obscure it so you can't see it. But let me tell you how he structured this, from two, starting at 2.1 and then what we see here in verse 5. He starts out, and he says, and you, and you is a direct object, the way he has tagged it grammatically. It's in the direct object case. Now, in order to have a direct object, you really need a verb. But he didn't tell you what the verb is yet. He just says, and you. And then he starts out being dead in your trespasses and your sins. But use not the subject. Use the object of a verb that he's not revealed yet. And then he just takes off on this, all these things about you. But then when he gets to verse 5, he comes back and he restates the, although you were dead in tre- we were dead in trespasses and sins, and he, and he does that to remind you where he started in verse 1 with the you. So what's the verb that goes with you? It's here in verse 5. He made you alive in Christ. That's the verb that you is the direct object of. He made you alive in Christ. But he holds the verb all the way to verse 5. It's like he says, now, he did something for you, and I'll just hold you for a minute. And let me talk about how dead you were, and I'll get back to you know, what he did for you. And finally, here it is. He made you alive. Now, isn't that good news for somebody that's dead? I mean, it's the best news ever. And although you were dead in your trespasses and sins, he made you alive in Christ. And then he gives this, by grace, you are saved. That's the, that's the work of God's grace. 
Uh, and he continues in verse 6. And he raised you up, and he seated you in the heavenlies in Christ Jesus. Now, what did we learn in the sermon yesterday morning? If you go back to verse 20, where he was talking about his, the surpassing greatness of his power, verse, chapter 1, verse 20, which he worked in Christ by raising him from the dead and seating him at his right hand in the heavenlies. So, so that's, that's what he did for Christ. But who else did he do that for? And he raised us. And he seated us in the heavenlies in Christ Jesus. So we are so identified with Christ that because he's been raised and because he's seated at the right hand, so are we in the heavenlies. Now you could say, well, I don't feel like I'm in the heavenlies tonight and I don't feel like I'm seated at the right hand of God. I'm sitting here at a table. I don't, I don't know who's at your left at the moment, but you know, you might not feel that you're at the right hand of God as you sit here in Enid, Oklahoma. But think about how we identify with Jesus in his death. Don't we think about Jesus died on our behalf? There's a sense in which we died in him. We died with him because he died for us. What happens in baptism? You see the baptism scene we do? What do we say? What do we say when somebody's a Buried with Christ. Now, of course, death precedes burial, right? And I think most of us are okay with that. We get that. It doesn't mean we were literally, physically on the cross, but we are so identified with him that, that he died our death. We died with him. Well, if we died with him, can you see how in the same way we identify with him in the resurrection and in his exaltation? And what do we do in that baptism? Buried with Christ in baptism? Raised to walk. That's why baptism is so beautiful. It reenacts this identification with Jesus, not just in his death, but also in his resurrection. And Paul adds then, seated with him at the right hand in the heavenlies. This is all the work of God's grace. In order that he might display in the age to come the surpassing riches. Now there's the fourth of six uses of this word riches. The surpassing riches of his grace in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. Man. Now you look at how dark verses 1 through 3 is with the predicament. And then... How glorious 4 through 6 is with God's work of grace. The, the, the light is even brighter than the darkness of the death as he describes us before Christ. It's beautiful. And then the consequences of this in verse 8. For by grace you are saved through faith. And this, not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. Not by works, uh, in order that not anyone might boast. So here is a, I've, this is one of those lines that I've heard so many times misrepresented in a way that it just can't be based on the way Paul has said it. Now, let me tell you how, how I've heard it misrepresented. For by grace you are saved through faith, and this not of yourselves. What is the antecedent of this? You know, this is a pronoun. It's a demonstrative pronoun. So what is it pointing back to? What is the noun or the idea that this is referring to? Now, in English, we just usually look for the closest noun to, to the pronoun. That's one of our Test, you know, what's this noun ref, pronoun referred to? We just start moving back to the last noun that was named, and if that makes pretty good sense, we assume that's the antecedent. That's the noun that the pronoun's pointing back to. If you do that here, what's the last noun name before this? Faith. For by grace you are saved through faith. So I've heard many times, you are saved by God's grace by faith, and that faith isn't even yours. God gives you that. It's the gift of God. Well, I, I, don't, 
I, that, I, don't, I, I guess we could talk about how that may, there might be some truth to that line, but that's not what Paul's saying here. And here's how I know. The pronoun is neuter. Now, I don't want to get into a gender lesson here. Uh, but this, and I'm talking bi, uh, not biological gender, I'm talking grammatical gender. I sure don't want to get into a biological gender discussion. But this is, we're talking grammatical gender. Nouns have gender, masculine, feminine, neuter. English, ver, or English nouns do too. We just don't worry too much about it because it's pretty intuitive. You know, like a man is masculine, a woman is feminine, and like this desk or table is neuter. We think of it as a neuter. If it's inanimate, we think of something as being neuter. Do y'all ever even think about that? Well, in Greek, it's not as easy. Nouns have gender, and it doesn't always make sense. I mean, the obvious ones do. Like a word for man, anthropos, it's masculine. Word for woman, Gune, you get a word gynecologist, gune, it's feminine. Uh, but it's not always that easy. Uh, like, uh, here's a good example sin. The word sin is hamartia, it's feminine. So, see, you might draw some conclusion about that, you know. <laughs> ah, it makes sense to me. Maybe you think Eve, you know. I see why sin would be feminine. But sinner, hamartalos, is masculine. <laughs> now, some of you think that makes good sense. Yep, there you got Adam and Eve right there together. Hamartia, hamartalos. And, and there's lots of that. The word for spirit, Holy Spirit, is neuter. It's a neuter noun. But grammatic, it's grammatical gender that we're talking about. So, so when you look at the gender of this pronoun, it's neuter. Now, in Greek, the antecedent of a pronoun has to agree with the pronoun in gender. So we've got to find a neuter noun or an idea that you'd point to. It can't be a feminine noun. And if you look back, the word for faith, I told you this last night, pistis. You know, I said you could name your child, and I don't want to get into it, but it's a feminine noun. This can't refer to faith, because this is a, demo, is a neuter pronoun, and faith is a feminine noun. So he's not saying, and faith's not of yourselves. You might look back and say, well, grace. He's talking about grace. Grace is a feminine noun, too. There's not a neuter noun here. Now, this shouldn't. Don't panic. This happens in Greek a lot. When you want to refer to a whole idea, you can use a neuter noun. And that's exactly what Paul's doing. He's talking about the whole process of salvation is not of yourselves. It's not something you can work for. It's not something you can achieve. And why is that? He tells you. Because if you could, you'd brag about it. You'd boast about it. The only way that... To, to keep human beings from boasting about it is to make sure it's by God's, it's a gift of God. So the whole process of salvation is what he's referring to, uh, is the gift of God. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which, were prepared in, which God prepared beforehand or prepared in advance in order that we might walk in them, that is, in good works. So look how easily Paul moves from salvation by grace, not of yourselves, lest someone might boast, to good works. Just like that. And the word, I'm, I'm struck by the language here, for good works, which God prepared beforehand or in advance. It's like it's more of that election language. That it's not just salvation that is preordained or that is that is predestined or that is chosen before the foundation of the world, but also that we do good works. Good works are as much a part of election as salvation. It it was prepared beforehand by God for us to do good works. 
Now, clearly, the good works do not bring about your salvation. He's just said that whole process of salvation is a gift of God. We don't have anything to brag about. But then what are, what's the consequence of God's grace? That we do good works. It's, it's the proper response to the gift of God. So we shouldn't hesitate to talk about good works. I feel like sometimes we, we're so fearful that it'll sound like we think you might be able to work your way to salvation that we just want to maybe downplay good works. And uh, that would be as big a problem as downplaying election. One other thing um, that I, I love in this verse 10, for we are his workmanship. I'm interested what your translation has here at 210. For we are his what? Handiwork. What? Workmanship. Anybody got something other than the handiwork or workmanship? This is, this is a word that means like, um, it's a word, if we get our word poem from this word. Uh, it, uh, workmanship is one way to translate it. Uh, I would say masterpiece would be a way to translate this word. Work of art. It's a word that describes the potter's skill in like making a jar. Or a poet's ability to, to, to um, write a poem. We are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. We are God's work of art. I mean, when we see the creation account and God says male and female, he created in, it, in his image, we see the great workmanship of God, the creativity of God, his skill and creativity in the creation of, the, of everything, but above all, human creation in his image. And I just think we don't, we don't value enough the the beauty of God's creation in human beings, and, and I'm not just talking about like the people, like you know, somebody that they might, the culture might say is beautiful, and I don't know, supermodels or Miss Americas or whatever. I'm talking about every human being. You just think about the way God has made us, the beauty of a human face. I just think is something we look at people in the face all the time. And, and don't stop to just see the beauty in a human face. Uh, Marilyn Robinson says that in a book, Gideon. Uh, she's one of my favorite authors. And, and she, she says that in that book, the beauty of a human face. And um, this, I like this image of God's great creativity and skill is on display in his creation of human beings. And of all things. And who more creative than God? Who's a greater artist than God? Now, 11 through 22. So let's, let's get the... I can handle this pretty quickly, but let's go ahead and set out the three sections. 11 through 13. Here's the plight. Here's the, here's the Gentile predicament. Therefore, remember... Now, the therefore looks back to, you know, in light of salvation by grace, created for good works. This looks back to that. But then remember. Now, the thing he wants them to remember is that Jew and Gentile were separated. Remembering is a good thing in most instances. I know we like to leave the past behind and move to the future. But if, if, if memory is a good thing. I think we all know how tragic it is to lose memory. And, and sometimes we, we forget intentionally. We want to forget things about our past, maybe. Um, have you ever heard of Harvey Yeary? Um, probably not. Have you, heard, have you ever heard of Lee Majors? Now, this is going to date some of us as, you know, put us in an age group. Um, you ever see the Big Valley? Heath Barkley in Big Valley was Lee Majors. Also, Six Million Dollar Man. Some of you remember that? Some of you guys might remember he was married to Farrah Fawcett. Yeah, she was like, you know, 
the, the sort of the, the woman of the day, you know, and that, I don't know, what was that, the seven, late 70s or something like that. Well, Lee Major's name was Harvey Erie. Lee Major's was his acting name. And he was from Middlesboro, Kentucky. You want to know who else was from Middlesboro, Kentucky? Me. The football field in Middlesboro High School is Lee Major's field, not Harvey Yeary field. Now, there's a plaque out front that mentioned, but it's, it's Lee Major's field. Took his acting name, you know. So my dad went to school with Lee Major's, where Harvey Yeary. And my dad's friends went to high school with him. A lot of them played football with him. And it absolutely infuriated them for a period of time there in the 70s and 80s because he was a big thing. That was a big deal. He was a big deal in Hollywood, you know. Interviews and things like that. He'd always say he was from Knoxville, Tennessee. Now, Knoxville's about 50 miles. It's the closest, you know, town of good size to Middlesboro, Kentucky. It's about 50, 55 miles away. But he'd just say he was from Knoxville, Tennessee. And they would just, he's not from Knoxville, Tennessee. He's forgotten where he came from. They didn't like it. Sometimes we forget intentionally and uh, cause, cause a, a lot of uproar. And then more often, though, you see the, what Alzheimer's does to a person and what happens when you lose memory and the way life can become so fragmented, you lose a sense of self. I've seen it in my own family there's just this relentless anxiety that often comes with Alzheimer's. And why? Well, if you can't remember things, you can't feel comfortable, you can't feel confident, you can't feel safe. It's sort of the deviousness um, of dementia. I think we can see how tragic the loss of memory can be. Many of us have witnessed it in people we love. Remember. It's okay to remember. It's often a very good thing to remember. And the thing he wants them to remember is that formerly you, the Gentiles in the flesh, those who are called uncircumcision by the so-called circumcision made by human hands, that you were at that time apart from Christ, alienated from the citizenship of Israel, and estranged from the covenants of promise without hope and without God in the world. Man. That's as bad as 2, 1 through 3. Gentiles were in a really bad stew. And, uh, and particularly this, they were alienated or estranged from the citizenship of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise. You know, that is, you might think about, I think first of the covenant God made with Abraham. That would be a covenant of promise. That his descendants would be great. They'll be a blessing to all nations. Um, but also with Moses. You think about the giving of the law. The law was an act of God's grace. You think about the covenant he makes with David. That one of his descendants will rule on a throne. You think about the new covenant that Jeremiah expresses in Jeremiah 31. 31 through 33. These are the covenants of grace that Gentiles didn't have a part in. They were because they were alienated from the people of Israel, without hope and without God. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who formerly were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. It's the blood of Christ again. Now, here's God's work of grace. He's already hinted at it, but here in verse 14 through 18. For he is our peace. Now, what did he do? First... He made the two one. That's the first thing that God did. The second thing is he destroyed the dividing wall of partition, that is the hostility in his flesh. And the third thing is he canceled the law of the commandments in the decrees in order that he might create in him uh, the two into one new man. Making peace. So you see those three things that were the work of God's grace? He made the two one. He destroyed or tore down the dividing wall of partition, the, that dividing wall, which was hostility, and he canceled our debt. Those are the three acts 
of grace there. So uh, he made the two one. That is, there was Jew and Gentile, but now because he tears down the wall, there can be one people of God, not two people, Jew and Gentile. Now there's one people, and it's made up of both Jew and Gentile. It opened the way for the two peoples to become one. It tore down that ethnic barrier between Jew and Gentile. And so he tears down the dividing wall. And then, and, 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 and he says specifically, it was the hostility in his flesh. So this is an important point. If you just tear down a wall between people, that doesn't mean that they're going to be reconciled. You know, if you, if, if, if you went to the southern border and just removed whatever wall or barrier might be there, it doesn't mean that suddenly um, people of different ethnic groups are just going to sort of suddenly get along well, that, they, that there won't be any hostility between them. The thing that really divides people, like you think about the wall between East and West Germany, that wall... It's not so much the wall. You can tear the wall down, but that doesn't mean people are going to now be reconciled. The thing that really needed to be done, well, the wall had to be torn down, but the hostility, there had to be a way for the hostility between Jew and Gentile to be removed. And that happened in Christ. Now Jew and Gentile could be part of the same church. They could fellowship together. They could have cookies and coffee, caffeinated, decaf, whatever. They could do that together. Because he removed the hostility. That's the real thing that he did. And uh, in order that he might reconcile the two in one body, I'd say that is the church, through the cross, having killed the enmity in him. The killed became the killer. Jesus, killed on the cross, kills the hostility. It's, it's quite an image. And when he came, he preached peace to you who were far off and peace to you who are near. These two that had been divided, Jew and Gentile. Because through him we have access, the two, in one spirit to the Father. So what is Paul about? He's about tearing down the walls that divide people so that there can be one people of God. Have, have you ever heard the Robert Frost poem, Mending Wall. It's a great poem. I've I've got it here. I'll, I'll read you a little bit of it. It's 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 a it's a fascinating uh, story it tells about I guess Frost the poet and his neighbor. And every spring, the neighbor wants to repair the wall that separates their property, and it's a lot of work. And Frost thinks we don't even need that wall. And so his whole poem is about the mending wall, and, and, and he didn't want to mend the wall because he didn't think they need a wall, but his neighbor does. So it, it, here it goes. The neighbor keeps saying, fences make good neighbors. You ever heard that phrase? Well, I think that's frost phrase. I think it goes back to this poem. So here's a part of that poem. So frost is questioning, why do we need to build, rebuild the wall? Here, here it goes. This is part of it. There where it is, we do not need the wall. He's all pine, I'm all apple orchard. My apple trees will never get across and eat the cones under his pines, I tell him. He only says, good fences make good neighbors. Spring is the mischief in me, and I wonder if I could put a notion in his head. Why do they make good neighbors? And then at the end, he says, he will not go behind his father's saying, because his father was the one who'd always said that. And he likes having thought of it so well, he says it again, good fences make good neighbors. And that, I think there's something in us. We sort of, we sort of define in and out groups, and, and, and whether we realize it or not, building walls between people is something that comes very naturally to human beings. Good fences make good neighbors, but not in the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is about tearing down walls between people so that there can be one people of God made up of all ethnic groups. I remember uh, 
you know, I grew up in southeastern Kentucky where my, the church I grew up in had almost no diversity uh, ethnically. I mean, everybody was redneck, 100%. And uh, I can say that because I'm from there. Um, and then I was in Texas and uh, for about a decade. Now I've been in Oklahoma about 25 years. You know, I've not been part of many churches where there was much diversity. But a few years ago, Society of Biblical Literature met in San Francisco. And I went out there for the conference. And one of my former students, his name's Ryan Blackwell, who's now at Cross Church in Springdale, Fayetteville, Arkansas, was the pastor at First Baptist San Francisco. So I was very, very excited on Sunday morning. Uh, Justin and I went out to his church. And I just remember sitting down there and looking up there at his choir, the choir at his church. And it, I felt like that whole choir, everybody was a different color. And sitting there watching that choir sing whatever song they were singing, and I remember thinking, this must be what heaven looks like. And this is the great work of God's grace. And the consequence of it is that we have this new dwelling place for God, the church. And it is made up of people of all uh, colors, ethnic backgrounds, uh, male and female, all, all economic categories, one people of God. By God's grace, he tore down the walls that divide. And um, that's good news tonight. Well, I did all right. I did all right. Um, so get you a little coffee over there so you can get home, stay awake and get home. Now, tomorrow night, we'll do three and four. That'd be kind of do three, chapter three, and get into four. And uh, that'll leave us basically five and six on that last night. So, Jonathan, I'm finished. You want me to? Same 6.30 tomorrow night. I assume there'll be cookies. Those cookies were warm when I got here tonight. So you get here at 6.10, you might get a warm cookie. And uh, I look forward to hopefully see you tomorrow night. Let me, let me uh, ask a blessing on you as you go. Now I pray that as you go out uh, from this place tonight, that you go with God and that you not be afraid. Amen.